Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is day six. six. We are seeing an artist chart a new pathway. Oh my God, the sound. I've never heard sound like that. It's leather, it's shiny, it's spice. A lot of creatures with instruments. One is a sloth on bass. One more time from the top, revisiting our favorite musical moments of 2023. That's coming up on day six today. Turntablist turns the tables. My version of a live Charlie Chaplin film. The friendly alchemy of Kid Koala's Storyville Mosquito. Glamming up Kiss for their final shows. He's the demon and he needs wings. What it takes to get Gene Simmons in his jockstrap. And right-hand man to the gods of rock. They all had a great sense of humor. Tony King on his life serving rock and roll royalty. All today on Day 6, the Holiday Music Hijinks Edition. Okay, pop quiz. What do Elton John, the Rolling Stones, John Lennon, and Freddie Mercury have in common? Well, yes, lots of drugs. But the answer I'm looking for is Tony King. It's hard to find the right adjectives to describe the life that Tony King has lived. He's one of rock and roll history's best-kept secrets. His behind-the-scenes life as a music promoter and executive, especially in the 1960s and 70s, is a thing of legend. Tony King is now in his 80s. His memoir is called The Tastemaker, My Life with Legends and Geniuses of Rock Music. I spoke with Tony in March. The book is called The Tastemaker, and your own sense of taste and style seems to be something that was with you from a very early age. It's part of the reason, I think, for your success in this industry. Were you born with that sense of taste? Where, where do you think it comes from? I was born to be curious about it, and I pursued it. When I was 14, 15 years old, I was fascinated by Tennessee Williams. That's not average for mm. a 15-year-old boy living in a provincial British town, you know, going to the movies a lot. I, I loved the movies. I loved the Tennessee Williams films, the fugitive kind, Suddenly Last Summer, um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, all those wonderful films. But then more than that, I loved the musicals. I loved the Doris Day musicals. I loved Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I loved Carmen Jones. Carmen Jones was one of my all-time favorite films. Yeah. So I immersed myself in things that were creative. And then I discovered paintings and, and art and I would go to museums and one of the joys of going around the world with the Rolling Stones was I was able to go to museums in in different parts of the world and do things that I would never have had the chance to do you know there's a wonderful museum in Lisbon where I remember taking Charlie Watts to it and Charlie and I really really loved it you know and I, I've always soaked up anything like that or in, in music and creatively in life you know i've always soaked it up is it true tony that, that when charlie watts the drummer for the rolling stones first met you he said that's the gayest person i've ever seen that's true very true <laughs> i saved his cat his cat was injured and it was in the hallway of where i was working with andrew oldham and charlie and shirley had a flat along the corridor and I found this injured cat and I said to Andrew oh there's this cat not in a very good way and Andrew said oh my god that's Charlie Watts's cat Charlie and Shirley's cat they'll be so upset he said is there anything you could do I said I took it to the vet and the vet said it'll have to go be put down I said no 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 I can't do, can't allow that mm -hmm. I said anybody else he said there is a guy on the other side of town does miracles so he <laughs> 
he actually put the leg back together and he like a jigsaw puzzle mended it and then when i came down the corridor charlie said to shirley that's the gayest person i've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> But you were empathetic about the cat. That your sense of empathy is something that giant stars must have caught up on because you were so successful dealing with people who must have enormous egos. You know, these these are not necessarily the, the easiest people to get along with, and yet you do seem to get along with people. And when you met the Beatles, you say that you found John Lennon to be the most intimidating. But it's Lennon who later brings you in to help manage his career during a, a key period in his life when he was separated from Yoko and he's, he's trying to refocus on, on his music. Some call that, that this time John Lennon's lost weekend because he was partying a lot in Los Angeles at the time. What did you most like about John Lennon and what scared you the most about him? The scary part was the early John Lennon, not the latter day John Lennon. When I used to see John in London in the Beatle days, he could be very sharp-tongued and if he decided he wanted to put you down, he could do it very swiftly. He was very clever with words and I always, I was always respectful of that and I always kept a distance. But what drew me to him in the end, when we started working together, I wasn't looking forward to working with him, to be honest with you. When he said he was coming to Los Angeles, and wanted me to help him with his album I thought oh my goodness you know I'm so nervous of him and the way he can be and then all of a sudden when I met him he wasn't like that at all he was very sweet and we had this very intense conversation about our families and I was talking to him about his aunt Julia who raised him and his mother who got killed and he heard the sound of the motorbike which killed her and I was telling him about my family and my upbringing and and that brought us close together. We both had these strange or different family upbringings, you know, and we both connected on that. And once we connected on that, we were off to the races. We just liked being with each other and we and a sense of humor. Yeah. is very important with all these people. They all had a great sense of humor. Elton has the best sense of humor. You can't imagine how funny he can be. One of the first stories you tell in the book is how you, you helped to bring John Lennon and Elton John together on stage in 1974 in, at the Madison Square Garden show. How close did that great rock and roll experience come to not happening? Well, if John had not had a number one record, it wouldn't have happened. He said that if whatever gets you through the night goes to number one, I'll sing with Elton on stage. Then I'll do Madison Square Garden. Elton called me up on his tour and he said, will John do Madison Square Garden? So I called John up and I said, we've got a big ask from Elton. John said, what is it? I said, he wants you to appear with him at Madison Square Garden. What do you say? John said, if my record gets to number one, I'll do it. It got to number one, but one week only, but it still got to number one and John did it. But if it hadn't have got to number one, that concert would not have happened. And that was one of the last times that John Lennon appeared live on stage, wasn't it? I think it was the last big public performance. He did a, a performance in a hotel for uh, Bernard Delfond or somebody like that. Madison Square Garden was the last big show that he ever did. But you took him to see Elton John live so that he would understand what Elton's shows are like, what the energy is like, what the sound is like. And when Elton came on stage, he knew where John was sitting next to you, and he curtsied. He curtsied to you, didn't he? Oh, this was when we went to Boston yes. to see the show. And he came up in this ridiculous outfit, which was little shorts and a bib with a heart on it. And um, he looked up at us and he cursed to us. And John was hysterical. He thought it was so funny. Elton did this little curtsy. And then, of course, you know, we saw him later on the plane on the way back to New York. And then we, we knew then we had to do some rehearsal because John was kind of blown away by what he'd seen. He said, oh, my God, the sound. I've never heard sound like that. It's amazing. He said, when we played Shea Stadium with the Beatles, we, we couldn't hear a thing. We had 
these silly little amps and we we couldn't hear anything we he said we could have sung in another language and it wouldn't have mattered because <laughs> no one could hear it you know so he was very impressed with elton's sound and then when we went into rehearsals he knew elton had a really sharp band too and and it was going to be a good show and everybody had to show up and do their best and they did I want to talk about the Rolling Stones. Is it true that you and Mick Jagger once lip-synced to the Supremes at a party? It is indeed. Um, <laughs> I, In fact, Mick was my backup singer. <laughs> I was Diana Ross and Mick was Mary Mary Wilson and uh, Keith was uh, Flo Bellard. <laughs> they were my backups and I lip-synced to Stop in the Name of Love. And the audience was Paul McCartney sitting in a peacock chair that Andrew Oldham had. Paul McCartney still reminds me to this day, if I see him sometimes, he'll tease me and remind me of my performance as Diana Ross. <laughs> I, it was quite well known, my performance of Diana Ross. <laughs> Tony, were, were you lip syncing when you sang I Left My Heart in San Francisco with Elton John at a Christmas party? No, we were singing live. So I started singing it in a very kind of croonerish um piano vocal you know i would sort of i left my heart in san francisco you know that kind of yeah. thing and then and when we got to the end when i come home to you elton joined in and, we, and when we got to the crescendo york that golden sun will shine <laughs> we were away <laughs> we were like really enjoying it we just did this kind of duet together it was very funny actually at this point when i did this duet with him he was reg he wasn't elton but you worked with elton throughout his career I and mean, when you began to work with him and, and actually assisting him in his career he was still reg then and then for his las vegas show in 2011 you made many tweaks and suggestions to help him have the best possible show. Beginning with his opening number, he wanted to open with Rocket Man. You told him to do something else. What happened? Yeah, I listened, I listened to the Rocket Man, and he had a very long version of it, too. And I said to Keith Bradley, his tour director, I said, this is not going to work. He can't come out and do a very dramatic, slow number like that. It's just not going to work in Vegas. Vegas want Vegas. <laughs> they want showbiz, you know. So I said to Elton, I think it would be better if you did the bitches back because the bitches back sums it up. You know, you're back in Vegas and it's a great number and you're the bitch and you're back. And he said, good we'll do it and so we did and then we we cut rocket man down a little bit as well i mean we had known each other for so many years since 1967 and he respected my taste and he respected my truth if he didn't agree fine he could turn around and say i actually don't agree but most of the times he did and he would ask my opinion on many matters over the years and i was always pretty straightforward and I am straightforward I'm a straightforward person I don't deal in half-truths you know my lovely dad my grandfather who raised me his great maxim was don't tell lies and don't get involved with the neighbors <laughs> <laughs> well one of the truths that you do tell in this book is about your own HIV status and, and you do say in the book yeah. that this is the first time that some people who know you uh, we'll find out that you're HIV positive. Why was it important for you to do that? Because it's time that people just owned up to it and to, time to let people know you can live with it and it's not going to kill you. You know, there was a time when that wasn't the case and I lost a lot of friends and I witnessed a lot of death and I sat around a lot of bedsides and I went to a lot of memorial services and I went to a lot of very, very sad occasions and I lived through the worst of it. So when I got the virus myself, it was the worst day of my life because I thought I was going to die like that. And I didn't know about the medication. I, did, I knew there was some medication, but I, didn't, I had not researched it because I didn't feel like I needed to because mm. I was okay. And then, of course, I wasn't. So then I did do the medication and the medication saved my life. Mm -hmm. But I still wasn't ready to tell people because I had a sense of, I was ashamed of myself for quite a long time. I couldn't bring myself to tell people. I remember I told Elton because Elton was in hospital having a small procedure and I went to visit him. And he said, 
you know, Tony, there's something different about you. You There's something about you that's a little bit softer and a bit different. What's going on? And I told him, I said, well, actually, I'm HIV positive. And he goes, oh, I knew there was something. Hmm. He said, I knew there was something. So then I started to be braver about telling people. But when I did the book, I thought, Oh, okay. Loads of my family are going to find out. So I had to quickly call my brother mm -hmm. and say, Peter, there's going to be something in the book that you don't know about. And I just want to tell you now that I'm HIV positive. And he said, but you haven't got AIDS, have you? And I said, no, Peter, I haven't. He said, well, then don't worry. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But however many years I've got, I'll take. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm over the line anyway. I'm 81 next month. It must be extremely rewarding to be able to unburden the secret that you held for so many years in this book. Let me ask you about Freddie Mercury, because you spent a lot of time with Freddie. How much do you miss Freddie Mercury? An awful lot. Elton and I miss Freddie the most. We miss John, but we miss Freddie the most because Freddie was part of the gang. You know, and Freddie had the most fantastic sense of humor. I mean, well, he was hilarious. And he had such a great love of life and such a zest for fun and getting together. And he'd love to throw Sunday lunches. And he was a very social person. He loved to throw big parties. And he always used to come up with sort of mad things. You know, one night we were in a bar in New York and he started us. I want to start a list of B-movie actresses. And so we started this list. I've still got the list. We went through like, listing B-movie actresses all night long in this bar. And then we got other people involved. And Elton had to send a list in. And Charlie Watson, Shirley sent a list in. And we were getting lists from everybody of B-movie. What's your favourite B-movie actress? Oh, I know the one that Freddie liked was called Marlene DiMaggio. <laughs> that was his favourite Oh, I love that name, Marlene DiMaggio, he said to me. And him and Elton together were like a sideshow. I mean, if, if you sat in the room with them talking to each other, you just sat back and enjoyed the show because they just bounced off each other. You talk about Freddie Mercury at the end of his life and you say how brave he was. Can you tell us just a little bit about the last moments you spent with him? Well, uh, he was very, very ill and he was bedridden. When I first saw him, he was still able to go out a little bit and he took me out for lunch because he wanted to take me to this place that made delicious shepherd's pie and um, bought me two lovely chests of drawers, which I've got here now. And then he got sicker and, and wasn't able to do that and obviously had to avoid the press. He spent a lot of time in bed and when he was in bed, he bought pictures from auctions at Christie's he used to look at the catalogues and he'd choose something that he wanted and he'd get someone to go and put a bid in for him and the picture, whatever it was, was brought back to the house and he would just sit there and admire it and it was it was very moving to watch his reaction because he loved he used to say to me, Oh look at this woman, a girl in a red dress by Tiso he said, look at her, isn't she wonderful, isn't she wonderful? And he was so noble, that's the word I've used quite a few times, but he was very noble. He wanted to watch mad things on TV. One afternoon we were watching Dionne Warwick, Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight singing Superwoman on Oprah Winfrey's show. Mm -hmm. And Freddie said, look at these divas, look at these divas. <laughs> and we were both sitting there loving this diva performance of these three women outdoing each other on Superwoman. It was fantastic. And he was fantastic. I miss him terribly. I miss him terribly. Let, let me ask you this. In 1973, you dressed up as Queen Elizabeth II and appeared in a TV advert for John Lennon's Mind Games album. Do you think you'll be dressing up as Queen Camilla anytime soon? I don't think so, because there's only one Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you're going to dress up as the Queen, there was only one Queen. And Camilla, God bless her, she'll be Queen, but she'll never be the Queen. <laughs> Tony King, a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for talking to us, and, and I, I enjoyed your book so much. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope I've given you decent enough answers. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, you have. Thanks again. All right. Bye. Bye-bye now. Tony King's memoir is The Tastemaker, My Life with the Legends and Geniuses of Rock Music. I spoke to him in March. 
still lots to come on the Day 6 Music Edition, including Kiss says goodbye to their lavish live shows, what it takes to get them in their glam metal gear for a final carouse. best. Hanging up here is Jean's cod piece. It's massive. Every year it gets bigger. Um, these are some arms for the armor. And I have a set of wings here that are drying right now. Wings, armor, action. That's Rebecca Severn. She was the wardrobe manager for KISS on their end of the road world tour. The wings for Jean. Everything leather that the band wears, I built. But um, other people do other things, like we have a person just for making the spandex, the person for the boots, because if one person is sick, it doesn't kill the whole production. Last month, KISS wrapped up a slew of shows in Canada, wowing the crowds as only KISS can. And Rebecca was in the wings at every gig. My duty on this tour is to make sure the blacks are black and not gray. Everything's clean, all the stones are in place on the clothes, the mirrors don't steam up on Tommy's outfit, the silver is as shiny as it can be. The stakes were especially high on this tour because the band insists it was their last. I spoke to Rebecca Severin last month, just ahead of the band's final show at Madison Square Garden. Rebecca, for how many years have you been making Gene Simmons' codpiece? Since 2004. So almost 20 years, 19 years. Have his cod pieces changed over time? Yes, they get longer. <laughs> <laughs> they were shorter when I started. Now they're almost like two feet. And you also make wings for Gene. What does he need wings for? To look cool. Well, he's the demon. Yeah. And he needs wings. So he flaps them. It's very dramatic on stage. They're a showstopper. He just lifts his arms up and he poses. It's all part of his act to um, just get in the character, to have the wings. The wings are my favorite part of the costume. Wow. And so how did you come to start working with Kiss and bring your craft to the way they look on stage? Well, so one of my friends had a friend who was working for Kiss. And I said, Oh, I would kill for that job. That sounds awesome. It's leather. It's shiny. It's spikes. It's studs. It's like, and the next thing you know, next day I get a call. Hey, Rebecca, I broke my hand. Can you finish building the kiss costumes? And this is when Gene wore head to toe leather. He had leather sleeves with silver leather spikes, leather harness, leather cod, everything leather. So I said, sure, I'll do it. So I took over the job. I went to meet Gene to fit him in the costume, and I had a t-shirt on that had the Hulk on it, because I like comics. Comics, costumes, all of that is yeah. the same world that I like. Yeah. Gene's also a huge comic book collector. I found out that day. He's like, who drew that? Jack Kirby. And he started quizzing me on comic books, and a fit and turned into a discussion about comic books and our favorite Silver Age artists for comics. Next thing you know, two weeks later, I get a call. We're doing a show in Chicago. Would you like to come and work in the makeup room and set up our costumes? And I was kind of hooked. I always wanted to go on the road with the band because it just seemed more glamorous than staying home and sewing. Well, it's, it's all going to end in December. It's unbelievable that Kiss is going to sign off one night, uh, that second night in, in Madison Square Gardens. So what, what has the energy been like? at these Canadian shows over the past few weeks? It's been insane. It's probably the loudest audience I witnessed was in Quebec City. Right. People were screaming. The songs weren't even playing. You just hear like this massive, yeah. even up in the nosebleed areas, I see people screaming and standing up and waving. It's high energy. Well, you have to make sure that they look like Kiss and that they look great in their costumes. How much of the show do you actually get to see? I see all of it. 
From the beginning of the show, I take Paul's vest when he throws it off stage. I make sure it's hung. And then after that, I race to Gene's side of the stage and I work on his side. So if he needs something, if his costume hurts, if something breaks, I need to be present to run up the stairs and fix it in quick change. Usually everything fits and I just sit and I watch. And when they do deuce, I walk to the front of the stage so I can see them do their dance, you know, and they're all together, moving the same time. And I like the... I like the pyro, so I make sure I'm out there the whole show just to watch it. There's a lot of leather, metal, and mirrors on these costumes. How much does a typical Kiss costume weigh? Jeans is about 30 pounds. Whoa. I think the boots weigh eight pounds a piece when I weighed them last. Um, Tommy's boots are very heavy. They're probably about 15 pounds total. Paul's boots are very heavy. I think the lightest costume is Eric the drummer. He wears a t-shirt and fancy pants, and that's just like streetwear. So these are these are four very active older guys on stage. When they get off stage at the end of a night, how sweaty are the costumes that they give you? They are soggy and they steam. <laughs> so what do you do then? It's like melted bread, like wet bread. <laughs> I take them all. And I separate them, I spray them with rubbing alcohol, um, I mean vodka, with tea tree oil, and put them in bags and wash them the next day. I'm washing the costumes right now as we speak. Then I hang them to dry, and they have to be dry before the show. So you think these costumes are heading for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at the end of December? They better be. (laughs) I don't think. I just know they have to be, or something's really wrong. Because they're like the first killer costume band. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. What's your official job title, Rebecca? Uh, wardrobe wench. <laughs> Glorified scrub woman. Get trashed cleaning lady. I'm in charge of the wardrobe. I take care of the costumes. Well, fans also get dressed up for these shows. Have you ever seen anyone in the audience who's really impressed you with their hair and makeup and costume? Yeah, I follow them and I take photographs. <laughs> Do you tell them that you're with the band? No. I just say, I like what you're wearing. Can I take a photo? Wow. And they're happy for that. Okay. I'm going to ask you some silly questions that KISS fans might really want to know, okay? Okay. Do you worry that with all the pyrotechnics, a band member's head will burst into flames? No, I worry about my own because sometimes I stand in the line of fire. And the pyro was set up to miss the band. These guys are like uh, geometry majors figuring out where it's going to go, where it's going to fall. But sometimes I'm in the wrong place and they have to pull me away and I see sparks flying. Oh my gosh. Does Gene Simmons' tongue need special makeup to be seen from the back of the stadium? Mm, he has secrets and I don't think I can share them. <laughs> What's your top advice for fans trying to do kiss makeup? The band does their own makeup. I just say practice, 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 practice. Do band members ever just stay in costume and makeup overnight so there's less to do for the next show? No, within five minutes, they take it off. They're in, in the food room eating food and they go back to their hotel or they sign guitars and then they, they stay in costume for that. So this is an historic tour. It's a massive farewell and this is an iconic band. Yes. What has it been like to be part of all of that? Pretty awesome. I really like it because I like the music. I never get tired of watching them. I like the clothes, and they're very hardworking, so that inspires me. Like, even if they don't feel 100%, they'll give 200%. So I never have an excuse to say, oh, I got a sore throat, I don't feel good, because they feel the same way, and they they never stop playing. So I like that. Well, they're going to have their last show at Madison Square Gardens on December 2nd. They're going to stream it online. When it's over, do you think that these hardened veteran road warriors will be shedding tears? Are they going to cry? Yeah. I think so. I would. I'm sure the crew will be crying. We're all friends, so it's going to be hard to say goodbye. Rebecca Severin, it was really nice to meet you. Good luck for the, on your final days as, as wardrobe wench. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Rebecca Severin was the wardrobe manager for KISS on their End of the Road World Tour. I spoke to her last month.
Okay, if you've been to a wedding or chaperoned a high school dance in the past, say, 15 years, you have definitely heard this song. Oh yeah, that's Hey Ya by Outkast, but you knew that already. It's infectious, iconic, and it was written and produced by the one and only Andre 3000. In his post-Outkast years, Andre 3000 continued to make a mark in popular music. He made an appearance on Frank Ocean's massive 2012 album, Channel Orange. Since you've been gone, I've been having withdrawals. You were such a habit to call. I ain't myself at all, had to tell myself no. She better with some fella with a regular job. But Andre 3000 has never released a solo record. Until now. Andre 3000's solo debut, New Blue Sun, dropped last month. And it is not, in any way what people expected. For one thing, there's a lot more flute. That's the opening track from New Blue Sun. The title is... I swear I really wanted to make a rap album, but this is literally the way the wind blew me this time. This is not just an opening motif. New Blue Sun is a purely instrumental record, and fair to say it's a pretty big departure from Andre 3000's previous work. But music journalist and researcher Melissa Vincent is here for it, and she says it's actually not as much of a stretch for Andre 3000 as you might think. I think maybe from the outside it might feel a little bit surprising, but if you think deeply about the career that he has built for himself as one half of Outkast over the last few decades, you can see a expression that has always left a lot of room for creative exploration. Throughout his previous work, He's always been careful and intentional about tucking in moments that feel like they're coming out of left field, but feel like they're contributing to a larger sonic environment. You know, I think back to his speech at the 1995 Source Awards when he really ushered in a new era of hip-hop music by announcing the South had something to say. Did the South got something to say? That's all I got to say. People also forget that right before he said that, he talked about listeners being closed-minded. I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? Them closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear it. He was really thinking about what was new and fresh and unexpected about the project and the music he was putting out at that time. In a lot of ways, this is his first debut record. And with that, we are seeing an artist explore and chart a new creative pathway for himself. In a lot of ways, collaboration has always been at the center of Andre 3000's work and is the beating heart of this particular project. There's the energy of players like Carlos Nino. There's the work of Surya Bodoficina, who all contribute individual pieces, their collaborators and colleagues, but also the flute. His instrument is a subject as much as he is, that they're working together. They are collaborators, they're colleagues, they're co-conspirators. By Andre 3000's admission, he has been playing the flute for a long time. It really makes me think about what his relationship to the flute at this stage of his life is able to unlock. That earlier in his career that might have felt like rapping was able to convey and communicate the themes that he was exploring. But now the flute is his 
main collaborator and co-conspirator. For listeners who are thinking about how they reconcile New Blue Sun with what they've known about Andre 3000 in the past as foundational to the history of hip-hop, can think about what hip-hop is able to do for those that create it. Hip-hop is always a sound, but hip-hop is always a feeling and a spirit of experimentation and liberation for those that create it. And for Andre 3000, it has given him the option to experiment freely and in a way that is unguarded. And we see still him tucking in moments of play and mischief that we grew to love on the early Outkast records. Think about the album opener. I swear, I really wanted to make a quote-unquote rap album, but this is literally the way the wind blew me this time. Or 93 Till Infinity and Beyonce. You know, he was talking about, because the project is instrumental, that he felt that it would provide some wayfinding for the song titles to feel like they had a lot of information in it, a lot of ways for people to think about, where do I hear Beyonce in this? Because of how he's positioning certain themes, certain ideas, and ultimately that ability to think beyond the music in creative and dynamic ways, that really sits at the heart of what hip hop is as a genre that is always evolving. With the release of this solo record, Andre 3000 had free license to do whatever he wanted. And the fact that he created a galactic, new age, spacey jazz record of the highest magnitude feels like a project for listeners to, I think, really imagine themselves as participants, to think about what it means to listen to this music, to find themselves strapped into a journey, destination unknown and not fully understood, but still desirous to arrive at. Melissa Vincent is a music journalist and researcher in Toronto. That first aired last month. Still, lots to come on day six, including the friendly alchemy of Kid Koala's Storyville Mosquito. Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. Granted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly... Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand if you have the CBC Listen app. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts, also at cbc.ca slash day6. So this is what we have going on here. We have 20 miniature sets. We have cameras, we have puppets, we have performers, including a string trio and myself. And we're going to make a movie up on that screen. Nothing is pre-recorded. We're going to 
perform, film, live edit, project, score, and Foley, everything in one take. That's Eric Sand, also known as DJ Kid Koala, describing his live and very ambitious multimedia show called The Storyville Mosquito. Kid Koala first appeared on the Canadian hip-hop DJ scene decades ago. At the time, he was all about hip-hop turntablism and battling where DJs compete on stage for turntable supremacy. So about 25 years ago, Kid Koala sounded like this. Now, Kid Koala and his troupe of performers are on the road, taking their Storyville Mosquito experience cross-country. I spoke to him about it in February. My first question is, how big is the mosquito? Well, there are several versions of the mosquito in our show. There's actually 75 puppets, but depending on what type of shot we need in the scene and what kind of nuanced movement we might need from the puppeteers, we have a close-up mosquito, which is actually the biggest one we have. It's probably three feet. Okay. And then the smallest one in the cast is during one of the crane shots, <laughs> pull-away shots, and that one's under an inch tall. Whatever, whatever the scene requires, whatever that mosquito needs to do in that scene, we'll sometimes have to build a, a different puppet for it. I love the detail and the nuance mm-hmm. that, that seems to, to be in this entire event. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you how it's created. If I go to see your show, what will I see unfold on stage? Who will I see helping it unfold? It's a team of 15 performers up there, uh, including a cinematographer, a couple of stage managers. We have a string trio and myself taking care of the music in the Foley side, and then a wonderful team of puppeteers. Let's explain what Foley is, because it's one of those things that's connected to the analog era and that right. you know people, they don't think it exists anymore. Yeah, the idea is when there's a certain movement, especially because a lot of the show is quite cartoony in places, it just feels right to have a sound effect at that moment, you know, jumping off of something or landing on something. And, and that process of creating that sound at that exact moment in time is, is Foley. But I also, I'm up there with piano and drums and turntables and other percussion instruments, depending on what the scene requires. And what kind of reactions are you getting from audiences who are just following the story? Because this this is all in the service of of telling a narrative. Yes, it's, it's sort of my version of a live, I don't know, Charlie Chaplin film, (laughs) a silent dialogue free film, but through the music, through the sound effects, through the action and the camera moves, you're witnessing a movie being made in real time in front of your eyes. So you could watch what we're doing on the big screen, the film we're performing, projecting, live editing. But at any moment, you could look down on the stage and see how we're actually doing it. Everybody running around the stage to make that scene happen and those effects happen. Yeah, the reaction has been really great. A lot of laughter in some some of the more poignant moments. Some sniffles too. I hear some crying. <laughs> it's not not in a bad way, you know, more more in a touching way, I guess. But why do you think the story is so resonant? You know, it's it is a universal theme. This mosquito, poor thing, moves to the big city to try to join an orchestra and is met with a bunch of obstacles <laughs> he has to overcome before he finds his voice and you know i think it's a every mosquito story or every person's <laughs> story in a way and it, and it seems to work because it's dialogue free we've been able to tour to say abu dhabi or just recently in taiwan and audiences can understand what's happening in the show absolutely i, I love the fact that the mosquito is the star of the show because And this is something that I think maybe applies to some of your other performances too. There's a level of audience participation or a sense that the audience in these, in these performances is magnified Mm -hmm. and that you as the artist are almost shrunken down there behind your (laughs) turntables. Is is that intentional? Are you taking yourself out of the picture? Oh, kind of. I mean, I always consider myself a bit of an introvert. Even when I'm DJing in a club, I, I feel more comfortable behind 
a rack of turntable equipment or something. I was never the first one on the dance floor, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> that kind of life of the party. But however, with this show, it's just such a wonderful team of of artists and performers just working together. I always say it performance-wise, it feels like 15 of us on one surfboard. <laughs> I mean, we're just trying not to wipe out, but there's this urgency to it. There's this way we kind of have to mind meld to make the show actually work. It's definitely exciting from a performance perspective and hopefully for the audience as well. You're the father of two daughters. How did having kids change the way that you make music and the way you make art? Well, first of all, it was the sleep schedule. And <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of out the window. Yeah. But I create most of my, my favorite fantastical ideas sort of come through the delirium. So <laughs> I actually really enjoyed <laughs> the sleep deprivation. Um you know, looking back to to my childhood, I remember watching these Charlie Chaplin films with my grandparents and mm. my parents. Mm -hmm. And it, it was one of a handful of times where I, I recall all three generations enjoying. You know, I, I even remember at that early age just hearing my parents and my grandparents laugh and my sister and I laugh. It seeded something in me where I said, you know, when I grow up, I want to do something like that. I want to mm. make something that, that brings people together and enjoy that. So I think having your own children in the house, I mean, that's, that's an amazing test audience. <laughs> <laughs> They'll make their comments, you know, that tarantula, I don't like that color or something, you know? Yeah, and, they don't hold back. No, no, there's no filter. They said, those wings on the, the mosquito are garbage. You should try harder. <laughs> so we will. <laughs> but it seems like you yourself have always had been in touch with with the kid that you were, uh, I saw a video of you talking about, about records that you love and you held up a record, a little 45 record. It's just a little, you know, seven inch mm -hmm. and it was a children's record and it was called something like clucking ducks or something. And you said it was one of oh, the most classical cluck, classical, classical cluck, cluck. And you said it was one of the most yeah. important recordings in your life. Absolutely. The hen house five. What does it sound like? It's basically singing chickens and doing a ballad. And on the A side is chickens singing, not actual chickens, just humans singing in clucks in full three-part harmonies and stuff. And they're doing a version of uh, In the Mood. <laughs> so, I mean, just you have to rewind to that placement. It was in Vancouver at the time. I remember my, my mom said, oh, we're going to, you know, one of her office friends' house for dinner. She's invited the whole family over for dinner. I guess that woman must have been in her 20s at the time, lived in a small apartment in Vancouver. I remember her name was Angie. I remember we were sitting there being very polite and also very bored because there was nothing to do in her house, mm. at her apartment. And she says, I'm so sad that I don't have any Lego or anything for Eric to play with. And so but she says, oh, but I have a record you might like. We went over to the stereo and dropped the needle on it. And I heard these singing chickens and it just really just my mind splintered into different directions <laughs> and she actually just let me play it over and over again that day i was playing both sides i was listening oh there's a cow singing in there back up and you know it was just it reminded me of a of a, a cartoon on wax and so yes that that moment um was the first time actually some an adult actually let me handle a vinyl record my father was a little more precious with his collections he, mm -hmm. he said eric see that record player machine that you don't touch that <laughs> but meanwhile and he was like here's the needle and you put it on different sides of the record and yeah it was, it was a paradigm shifting moment for me you have a new record coming out in april creatures of the late afternoon is there any classical cluck on that are there any and well the concept is that every song is written by a collection of musical instrument playing creatures uh -huh. so sometimes i would just get into character for that i was drawing and painting a lot of creatures with instruments throughout the pandemic for example one is a sloth on bass <laughs> yeah. so it just started as something <laughs> funny that i was painting my kids and i were just painting and you know once i painted the sloth on bass guitar it became a little more real. And all of a sudden I said, oh, okay, well, what would that sound like? You know, what what song would that sloth write on a bass? And that would be kind of the catalyst for me to go into the studio and write a little track for, hmm. for that creature. Well, the Storyville Mosquito is so elaborate and delicate and intricate and visual. Mm -hmm. and it makes me wonder, will you ever like tour as a turntablist scratching records and battling again? Or are you committed to always having now 
a more elaborate stage presentation? Is that what's more interesting to you? You know, I like both worlds. I think it's, you know, rocking parties and playing nightclub sets and dance floor sets. I really enjoy that. Do I want to do that all the time? Do I think that's the only place that turntables could live comfortably? No, but um, I really do like the opportunity to bring it to different audiences. I mean, the context of the music in Storyville Mosquito, it is really just playing in that ensemble that I really enjoy. And so I don't see me giving up that or the the nightclub culture too. (laughs) It's like, there's only that many hours in a day. I'm like, let's use them all. (laughs) Eric San, really nice to talk to you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Eric San, also known as DJ Kid Koala. I spoke to him in February. His album, Creatures of the Late Afternoon, is out now. His live multimedia show called The Storyville Mosquito is coming to Calgary, Whitehorse, and Montreal in January. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Annie Bender and Pedro Sanchez. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott, and I'm Brent Bambury. It's two days to the NHL Winter Classic, two days to the Rose Bowl, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. Happy New Year, everyone. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.